navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to the datascape. Today we'll be discussing several updates from the Microsoft Build 2019 conference. For anyone who doesn't know, Microsoft Build is Microsoft's premier developer conference. This year, over 6,000 developers attended that conference in Seattle. Joining me today is Datascape regular, Warner Chavez. Hey, Warner, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Chris, how are you? Happy to be back here to discuss the latest and greatest here in the Microsoft developer space. And very excited to have you. Um, noticing, uh, you know, as we've worked on the Cloudscape together for so long, many of the vendors are are now moving to this gather everything and and do more less frequent but many more releases around these uh, conferences, which is always uh, interesting to see what they've saved up and the hype that they want to generate. Let's dive right into Azure SQL DB. What's new there? So Azure SQL DB has been the premier service of database as a service at Microsoft Azure. They really always put a lot of R&D into it. So they've done a lot of, a couple of very interesting things. That number one that I find the most interesting is that they have come out now with serverless offering for Azure SQL DB. Obviously, if you follow the general cloud database space, you will know that Amazon was the first one that brought out this idea of doing serverless databases with Aurora. Well, Microsoft is now bringing it into Azure SQL database as well. Now you keep that in mind, I was a very big skeptic for serverless databases in general because you know having a hot cache RAM, it's, it's a big difference in performance for a relational database. But I have found and I have come to understand now that really the serverless offering is more for databases that don't have a continuous workload that they can easily ramp down and come back up and our latency they can live with a little bit higher than normal latency, right? Because this is what happens, right? As they can take a little bit longer to come up, they take longer to come down. But if that is the workload that you have, then it makes a lot of sense, right, to have serverless. So I can see that it could get a lot of adoption in terms of departmental databases, databases that are not 24-7, smaller amount of users. It can bring really big economics into how you run those databases. And they are also adding compute auto-scaling. So if for some reason, usually these databases are pretty quiet, but you hit a day where you have some sort of spike in traffic, then the service is going to allow you to automatically scale the resources that you have with your serverless Azure SQL database. So very interesting there as well. Before you move off that one, I just want to point out that I'm thinking that this is, a, you know, you and I have been talking about the, the ever-changing role of the DBA in the cloud landscape. I'm thinking that this is another point that uh, you mentioned the, the how to use this and that it's for, for these sp specific cases. So one so should not suddenly celebrate if you're an IT manager, say, okay, great. I don't need very many DBAs. I'm going to fully embrace the, the, this technology and uh, reduce staff. This is, in my mind, a part of changing that role and knowing which services to use for what. So this is why I think more Microsoft Data Platform rather than DBA, at least in the Microsoft space. And, you know, just knowing which features to use for, for this. And Oh, yeah, uh, there's a big menu nowadays, right? Part of somebody's, I know we still use the DBA term, but really it should be, I don't know, we're going to have to come up with a new term for it, but a cloud data architect, something like that, right? You have to be able to give your business or your clients the right advice on which service 
and which type of billing model you should apply. And this is, I mean, Azure SQL DB is a great example because everybody is familiar with, with databases and how they usually run on premises. Obviously, it's a, a critical infrastructure that everybody has, but it applies really to every service, right? If, if your thing is not data, it's just, you know, API development, then you have to be familiar as well with what, what are the offerings, what are the options, how they're built and so on to really provide the best device that you can, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What, were there any other updates for Azure SQL DB that you wanted to cover? Yeah, so there's a couple of other interesting ones. Uh, Microsoft has been building a very strong IoT story and not just IoT story, but IoT story with hybrid computing. So now they have come up with a version of Azure SQL database for edge devices. So the idea here is that you will have some sort of device on-premises closer to where your actual IoT devices would be. And then you would have an actual SQL DB on that edge device. And the idea here, of course, is that you would have really high compatibility to the actual Azure SQL database in the cloud. But then you can start supporting offline type of scenarios, right? And, And previously, if you wanted to do this, you would have to do it with full-blown SQL Server, right? You wouldn't be able to just run Azure SQL DB instead. And then at, the, at that point, then you get into the situation of where are you, are you like migrating from SQL Server to Azure SQL DB? You need to start doing some sort of uh, replication into it or well, all this is handled for you by staying here with Azure SQL DB on edge devices. So it is very interesting. It also, I don't know, to me, it opens up the possibility that in the future, Microsoft is just gonna really offer up Azure SQL DB in general to be run on premises in some way, right? In some way, shape or form. We know that we already have Azure Stack. So it's my opinion, just a matter of time until all this hybrid computing, more of these services come into some flavor of on-premises as well. Yeah. This bringing the cloud to you is is really interesting to me, um, watching this happen. And it is getting pushed by all the major cloud vendors as well, right? AWS, uh, Google, Azure, they they all have to have a hybrid story at this point, and they're already competing hard to provide a very compelling hybrid story for their clients. Microsoft, obviously, in particular, it really is the one that is positioned, in my opinion, um, the best just because, I mean, they have already a footprint in pretty much every enterprise in the planet, right? So it should be natural for them to try to sell the hybrid angle. Whereas Amazon and Google, most of their clients are not running their software already on premises, right? So Microsoft has a good position there for the exploiting that, that advantage. Yeah. And then the last one for Azure SQL DB, this is very interesting. And it goes back to what we were just talking about, being able to choose the right offering and billing model for your database, is that we have this new way of running Azure SQL DB, the SQL DB, let's call it the SQL Server SQL DB, and also for PostgreSQL, which is called Hyperscale. And I know that's kind of a mouthful and it, uh, I always thought it was pretty funny that they came up with that name hyperscale. But really what hyperscale is, is that you can have, and, and it's different between SQL DB and PostgreSQL. So I'll just go over the SQL DB one first. So what it does with SQL DB is that it allows you to have really large OLTP databases that you can create many, many read replicas from all managed by Microsoft, of course. This is all a managed service. And then the other interesting thing is that when you're running hyperscale, the 
operations such as backups or restores or creating new replicas are not size of data operations. They are fixed time operations. So regardless whether your database is 100 gigs or 20 terabytes, the operations take the same amount of time because of the architecture that they've created in the cloud to uh, support this, right? So if you need to restore a snapshot of a hyperscale database, it'll take the same amount of time, whether it is 10 gigs or it's 10 terabytes, right? So this is pretty cool. The idea, of course, here is to support and make it really easy to run and really leverage the power of the cloud for very large OLTP databases, right? Hyperscale for SQL DB right now, I think the limit is 100 terabytes. So, I mean, keep in mind, and it's not a service for data warehousing, right? For that, we have Azure SQL DW. It is for large-scale OLTP deployments. And then the other very interesting thing is they came out with a similar idea. It's not implemented the same way, but they have a similar idea for PostgreSQL. And this comes out from a Microsoft acquisition of a company, I think it was called Citus Data, who created this plugin for PostgreSQL, basically, that allows you to chart a PostgreSQL um, database. So basically turns a uh, an SMP PostgreSQL database into an MPP PostgreSQL database by doing uh, sharding based on a distribution key. And then the nice thing about it is that the plugin has this sort of layer that allows you to transparently query or insert data, and it will do the routing appropriately to the right node that it needs to talk to to get that data back. And it can also, if you do a query that is across different nodes, then this plugin as well can will just aggregate the data and, and compound it properly for you and give you the, the answer, right? So this is very, very interesting as well. And the interesting thing here, of course, is that it kind of differentiates Microsoft's offering for PostgreSQL compared to other competitors, right? So they're kind of including a feature here for PostgreSQL that goes beyond just, you know, offering a vanilla PostgreSQL database, which I think is very compelling because you know, it has to be some sort of some sort of enticement, right? Some sort of incentive for people to start looking into why would you run these open source databases in, in Azure compared to some of the other providers, right? So I thought that was a, it's an interesting strategic decision that they're going for. I think so too. And I see a lot of in, very strong interest in Postgres and have for a couple of years now. There's a lot of people embracing it. So it yeah. makes sense. The fragmentation of MySQL hasn't really helped with the adoption, right? Because now there's so many flavors of it. And PostgreSQL, from the other hand, has stayed on one main version. And it's a very interesting product. It has uh, some uh, developer uh, semantics, especially in the SQL language, that are actually pretty neat and that they are not found in some of the other products too. So it is, it is an interesting product. If I was starting an open source database uh, development, I would definitely really strongly consider it. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. You mentioned Azure SQL DW. That's uh, definitely a very kind of a favorite product of mine. What's new there? There is a lot of new stuff here on SQL Data Warehouse, but I, again, this is kind of expected because Microsoft is pushing, well, not just Microsoft, all the cloud providers, they're pushing big on the data, AI, ML space, and the whole analytics space. So obviously all these database-related uh, backend services have to be really strong to support all these scenarios. So SQL Data Warehouse comes in now with a lot of new features announced at Build. So I'm going to walk through, through the main ones here. First one is a result set caching. So you will be able to actually cache 
the results of queries, which you wouldn't be able to do before, right? Usually what we have is a cache for the data itself. So the data that is involved in a query, it's usually always in RAM, right? That's how most of these database engines work. But here what we're doing is establishing a new cache that actually will cache the results themselves, right? So the idea, of course, is that it's very likely that if you're, especially if you're using a tool like, let's say, Power BI, Click Tableau with a direct connection, many users usually play around with the same sets of data, and this gets translated into a query that goes out into the back end to fetch that data out, right? But without the result set caching, you're basically recomputing these results over and over and over and over to serve the same data to many different users. So this is going to make that scenario perform a lot better, right? So all these queries will just get cached and then they will not be recomputed. So you're trading off basically a certain amount of memory for freeing up a large amount of, possibly a large amount of compute out of your data warehouse. So I thought that's pretty cool. That is pretty interesting. Now, is the user deciding which result sets to cache or is this happening automatically? I haven't dove into it internally to see exactly what is happening. I would assume that it is going to have, at the beginning at least, it's just going to do it itself because at least to me, it makes sense that you want to leave it to the software to figure it out, right? It's not something that I would want to micromanage. But I'm not sure if maybe they will add that capability at some point, right? But I believe it's software-led at this point. Yeah. Which would make it better, to, in my mind. I'm sure there's some secret parameter to force the behavior, but uh, you know, the danger is if the result set has changed. Yeah, like, like the yeah. classic, uh, remember, I don't know if you remember the old SQL Server pin table to memory thing. And that you could oh, yeah. just pin a table to memory, not not the the actual real in memory that they came out with years later, but like back in SQL 2000, you could pin a table kind of thing, and then it was all these DBAs that thought they were smarter than the caching algorithms, and they pinned a bunch of like super important tables, and actually the performance was a lot worse in most cases, because you know humans trying to basically try to do the software job. And, well, and, and then enforcing the buffer poorly. onto the disk. Right. Yeah, and then doing it poorly. Yeah. So. Right, right. All right. So what else did you want to highlight? All right. So we've got a bunch here. Let's see. Materialized views are now going to be supported on DW. So you will be creating, uh, you can specify a view that is dependent on tables. And it actually will not just be uh, existing in terms of definition, but it will be materialized. So uh, like same thing here. We can lead to improve performance because the view will be basically pre-computated. And when the data that is underlying gets refreshed, then the view will get refreshed automatically as well. So this is another performance-related uh, improvement. That seems like that feature might have been borrowed from, say, Oracle? <laughs> yeah, well, the SQL Server also has materialized views. It's just not called materialized views. For many years, it's just been called indexed views. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah, right. I forgot yeah. about this. So, but uh, yeah, uh, in, in the broader literature for database architecture, everybody uses the term materialized views. And Oracle has always used that term, too. As you know, classic marketing, when SQL Server came out with this feature, they could have easily called it materialized views, but for some reason they wanted to name it something else kind of thing, right? So they became indexed views instead. Gotcha. So, 
Anyway, a lot of uh, history things coming out, I guess, in the last few minutes. There's uh, ordered columns to indexes. So this is an, another performance improvement, which basically means is that the engine can now also put some ordering into column store indexes. I'm just gonna do a really quick explanation of why that is important. Column store indexes are for really, really, really large tables, right? We're talking about billions of rows. And usually they don't really establish an order of the different pieces of the column store, the data that lives inside the different pieces of the column store. What happens is that the engine keeps the minimum and the max value that it has of that particular piece of data inside each segment of the column store. So let's say if you have a column store with numbers from one to 10 billion and you search for number one million, then it's gonna look into every segment and see, well, is there a min and max of where the number of one million is between those, right? And then it picks those segments and it brings them back to compute the result. Now, if they are ordered though, then it knows that it can find one million in exactly you know, a certain range of segments and discard all the rest. It doesn't even need to check the rest, right? So it makes computation a lot faster. Right. The price that you pay, of course, is that the data has to be maintained in order, right? So it's a trade-off where you're making your loading slower for the boost of getting faster fetch, right? So it might not be for everybody. Column store indexes perform really well without being ordered anyway. But depending on your scenario, this could be a nice tuning button to press, right? Mm -hmm. Some other good stuff on DW, we have now this feature called prioritize workloads with workload importance. And that's uh, basically a kind of like a quality of service thing that you can establish on the data warehouse where a particular group of people can be given a workload importance over other people. And just the, basically what that means is that when the engine is scheduling work, if your boss is querying something and you're querying it at the same time, and like, you know, the, the admins gave your boss higher workload importance, he's basically gonna cut in line, cut you in line to get to the CPUs, right? So some groups of people can get faster the resources they need. That's basically what it is. Seems like uh, before you move off of that, if you are a, D a DBA or, or data platform consultant, leveraging uh, Azure DW seems like a good thing to audit on a regular basis. You never know who could sneak in there. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want those data scientist people to give themselves really high workload importance and then like kill your data warehousing one shot. Yeah. Rogue data scientists. <laughs> yeah. And what else we got? Uh, we have JSON support now on DW. I think you, there is a place to store some JSON in the data warehouse and to do some compute on it, mostly on an uncommon schedule or, or it should be a rattery in my opinion. It shouldn't be something that you do all the time, right? Because if you start just doing JSON fields and just you know doing queries all the time based on JSON fields, then I feel like that should just be carved out and, and be made into an actual part of the data warehouse model, right? I don't know if that yeah. makes sense. Hopefully it does, right? The idea that if something is just being queried a lot, then you should just make it an official part of your data warehouse and not leave that particular field or piece of data buried inside a JSON text, right? I agree. So, you know, every now and then there's nothing wrong about it. And maybe, you know, you, you come into this uh, situation where you put a bunch of JSON in it, just kind of like the just-in-case thing in the data warehouse, and then, you know, you actually need to write a query against it, then now it's very simple to do so, right? So that's good. 
auto-update statistics is now supported, which was, you know, a big ask item for a long time. People, like, they don't want to manage their own stats. Come on, the software needs to be doing that. So it is here now, which is great. Mm -hmm. And we also have dynamic data masking now supported in uh, SQL Data Warehouse. If you're familiar with this feature in SQL Server, then it's pretty much the same thing. If you are not familiar, basically what it does is the classic, you know, you have your credit card and it has, how many digits does a credit card have? 16. 16. Yeah. So then you could create a mask where the first 12 are all stars and then you only see the last four kind of thing, right? So oh, that's, that's where dynamic data masking comes in. I'm surprised yeah. that it's taken a, taking this long to get uh, those features. I know it was added to SQL Server a while ago, but it still seems like a long time. I, I uh, a lot of my work was in the finance industry uh, prior to joining Epithian, and that used to just drive the, you know those fields, social security, credit card number, things like that. Used to drive our auditors nuts. That uh, any admin staff, like sysadmin staff, could could easily access that sort of thing. Yeah, now, well, SQL's had dynamic data masking since 2016, and now 2019 is going to have static data masking, which I think is going to be become the de facto standard for moving prod data to most non-prod environments, right? Like the classic uh, UAT dev or, or, or support copies of databases that are every day they're copied around in all sorts of companies with full-blown access to the data, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so that all that is obviously going to be changing with now the regulatory environment that we live in these days, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good thing. I, if you're if you can take advantage of these uh, features, you you should. It's a data breach ready, waiting to happen. Yeah, absolutely. So that's it for uh, SQL Data Warehouse. A lot of stuff for SQL Data Warehouse. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised. It's, it's kind of a flagship product, I, I think. Continuing on the, the data train, how about Azure Data Factory? Azure Data Factory. So there's a couple of really interesting updates in Data Factory. I actually have a blog post that is going to be coming out next week on the first one. And it's called, this is new feature called Mapping Data Flows. This visual data transformation with mapping data flows. The idea here. If you're familiar with Azure Data Factory, then you know that it's basically the orchestration ETL service that Microsoft has in Azure. But really, Azure Data Factory so far has been more about ELT and not ETL, right? You extract the data, you load it somewhere, and then once it's in that place or whatever that may be, then you have to use some external compute to actually manipulate it, right? So now with these data flows concept, what we're doing is that we're actually putting the transform back into Data Factory itself so that it's all kind of self-contained there, right? So it's more similar to how you would, let's say, compute an SSIS package, if you're familiar with SSIS. Uh, so the idea here is that you can do the transformation itself inside Data Factory, and you can do it in a visual environment uh, with very little coding involved. If you are interested in looking at a demo of how this works, like I said, I have a blog post that I'll be posting on the Pythium blog next week. That means the week of... June 10th, it'll be coming out. And the idea here, like I said, it's all transformation to be done and data integration to be done visually with very actual little coding. It has its own expression language. So you can, you know, project uh, new fields, so you can filter, so you can split columns and do all sorts of things, right? Very, very cool. 
Warner, the, that blog post won't make it into the show notes due to the way the editing and whatnot works for the podcast. What will you be tweeting about it? And if so, what is your Twitter handle? Oh, yeah. Or, or you know, you can always follow me at, at uh, Warchav. That's W-A-R-C-H-A-V. Or the if you follow Pythian on Twitter, it'll definitely be coming out on the Pythian Twitter news feed as well when it's out. So Okay, great. We're good there. Yeah, so this is this mapping data flows, by the way, is now you can access it. It's free to check it out right now. The the way that it works under the covers is also very interesting. What they're doing is that they're translating these graphical data transformations into Databricks jobs, right? But the nice thing is that you personally don't have to worry about the Databricks piece. It's all managed by Microsoft, right? Under the covers, the software translates your visual design into a Databricks uh, job, and then it runs it, and then you get the results, and the Databricks cluster gets disposed off. You don't, you don't even know what's happening behind the covers, right? That's, that's the nice part about it. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, they're bringing, like I said, this is right now called mapping data flows, because the idea here is that you are well, like the name says, mapping different data sources. So the experience is more gears toward data integration and putting different data sources together that are mostly compatible with each other. Now they are previewing another type of data flow that's going to be called the wrangling data flow. The wrangling data flow is going to be geared more towards doing a lot of data exploration or trying to do more like data extraction where you have disparate type of sources or where the data might need to be cleansed or you might want to do some fuzzy matching, things like that, where it's a little bit more, like the name says, it's a little bit more uh, complicated or it's not as easy to just integrate the sources directly, right? So they're going to add more capabilities here. So Dataflows right now has that mapping capability and now the wrangling Dataflows is in preview. We'll probably be covering more of the wrangling Dataflows once we have some more details out on the regular Cloudscape updates for sure. Sounds good. And no Microsoft update with you is complete without a Cosmos discussion. What's new over there? Oh, there's a lot of interesting things here with Cosmos as well. First one that I think is very cool is that they're opening Cosmos for a Spark API. So this is basically going to allow you to run Spark against the Cosmos, uh, a new Cosmos DB endpoint. So your Cosmos DB cluster is going to behave as if it just was a, a Spark cluster that you can send Spark jobs into or Spark queries through a notebook, for example, which I think is really, really cool because then it marries the whole capabilities of the OLTP capabilities that Cosmos has with the ability to also do analytics in place with that Cosmos DB data. Previously, if you wanted to do this, you have to provision your own Spark cluster and I mean, even if you did it on, let's say, something that is really easy to manage, like Databricks or HD Insight, you still had to, you know, create the cluster yourself and so on, right? Uh, and you would use the Spark connector to, to the Cosmos DB database. But now they're making that even simpler. Like I said, it's Spark API. You'll be able to enable it, and then you can send Spark queries or jobs into your Cosmos DB. Cool. Um, database. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's really neat. Something that is, I would say it's interesting, I'm not 100% sure how much adoption is going to get, is that they have a new API. It's the etcd API. For those of you that are not familiar, etcd is basically the metadata store that is used for Kubernetes. 
to keep the Kubernetes cluster state. So if you are for some reason rolling your own Kubernetes infrastructure inside Azure, then you could technically use Cosmos DB for your uh, metadata store. I suspect this was something that Microsoft developed for their own Azure Kubernetes service, and they just decided, you know, why not just make it public? We already developed it kind of thing, right? Cool. Something that is also kind of married to the Spark API, but I think it's very cool as well, is that you're going to have a, a Jupyter Notebook experience built right into the portal for Cosmos DB. So uh, for just quick showing people some data for demos, I think it is going to be great. For people that just want to explore real quick what they have in their Cosmos DB database, this is going to be really nice, like I said, because it allows you to just write your queries right there, get graphical output if you need it, create charts and so on, all there, right there on the portal for Cosmos. Oh, that's um, a great feature. Yeah, and uh, they have adding a bunch of new capabilities to the SQL language inside Cosmos. So things like offset limit for getting paginated result sets, a distinct keyword, they're adding composite indexes. So you will be able to do multi-column sorting. So before we only had single column indexes, and there's going to be correlated subsqueries, uh, again, using exists and also array expressions. And now the big thing here about uh, being able to do correlated subqueries is that before we had correlated subqueries, these queries had to be determined through joins. And the problem there is that even though you arrive to the same result, computing the join usually produces an explosion of intermediate rows that then have to get filtered back down. Whereas doing a proper correlated subquery just drills really fast into whatever the filter is that you're putting in the correlated subquery, and then you can get the results quicker because there's no that there's no intermediate step there where the amount of records get bigger because of the join, right? So previously you could do pretty much the same thing that you can do now, but you're going to be able to do it now with a lot better performance because of the correlated subqueries. So I think that's pretty cool. And the last one is that Multimaster, uh, of course, has now been available for a few months on Cosmos DB, which is you know, a really, really, really good feature. A game changer, in my opinion, uh, that hopefully we'll see even more adoption coming down the line because I don't think enough people get the how, how well it works to manage and deal with planet-scale databases, really, with Multimaster. I've, I do a demo in my sessions where we sync some databases, Japan to Canada, with concurrent workloads, and the whole thing works really well. So previously, if you had already an existing database, you couldn't just convert it to Multimaster. It had to be Multimaster from the start. Now they have changed it, and you can actually convert a single-master database to Multimaster seamlessly on the portal without any issues or downtime. So beautiful. You can just go ahead and go from single region to multi-master region. Now, press of a button. That's it. Okay. Let's uh, talk about blockchain. I, you know, it's still very I know relevant. you love blockchain. <laughs> I, you know, I, we don't I don't talk I, enough I, about it. I, you know, we were going to do a podcast and still might at some point called now that the hype is over, we can really get down to business when it comes to blockchain. We're it, not financial it, advisors. That's right. However, you know, I think it's still a very relevant technology and then, you know, maybe now in IT, we can actually start using it. 
So Azure is a, blo- a leader in the blockchain space, at least from a public cloud perspective. What's new over there? So I, I'm really happy that you mentioned that, you know, now that the hype is over, maybe we can start using it because this is exactly what the update is all about, is about making it really easy. I mean, it makes sense because the build is mainly a developer's conference. So you want to make these updates a build where they're very developer oriented. So number one is that blockchain purely as a service is now GA and it's using as this underlying ledger a technology called Quorum. Quorum is basically an Ethereum compatible ledger that has been expanded by JP Morgan by adding some features that were required by enterprise customers that are not in the native Ethereum implementation, right? But the nice thing about it is that it is a wire protocol compatible with Ethereum unless you're using those specific features that are just in Quorum. For example, Quorum has confidential transactions, which uh, Ethereum doesn't have natively at this point. So that's a really cool thing because it's, it's blockchain as a service. It's completely managed by Microsoft. Right, So you can build, let's say you have yourself and five other partners and you're all part of the same supply chain and you're really interested in this whole blockchain thing, how you can all maintain uh, a distributed database and you know, share all this data and do some smart contracts triggered in, in your own uh, supply chain and all these things. Then before we had this Azure blockchain as a service, of course, you can always just boot up, let's say, Ethereum or Quorum in some VMs, but it's obviously a nightmare to manage, right? It's, it's definitely not something that just any admin can just go ahead and do this securely and with good practices and so on, right? And then Microsoft came with this idea of the blockchain. I don't know if you remember blockchain workbench. And that was kind of like the middle ground between doing everything yourself and the full-blown blockchain as a service. And Workbench, basically what it did was was kind of hold your hand into doing your blockchain implementation. So it came with a bunch of templates. You could just, you know, you could just do a push deploy of the infrastructure after you configured it through a nice interface. Uh, But once it was out there, it was up to you to manage it, right? So Workbench made the deployment really easy, but it wasn't really a managed service. Once it was created, it was all up to you. So blockchain as a service is now really blockchain as a service. You configure it all uh, declaratively through the portal or through a JSON file through an ARM deployment or to PowerShell. And once it's deployed, these blockchain nodes are all managed by Microsoft and they have also added a bunch of goodies in the implementation so that you don't just have a blockchain and that's it. Because usually you don't just have a blockchain and that's it. You want, for example, an API that you can get data in and out easily. You want a friendlier interface to the data. The blockchain data format is not particularly friendly to for queries, for example. Most of the time, what people do is that they extract the transactions and they change the format somehow and then put them into a relational database, for example. So that is really easy to just select and see what's been happening. So all these things are masked, the complexity is masked from you and you get all these features from the blockchain as a service. So that's, that's very, very cool. And like I mentioned before on, on secure confidential transactions, so now there's support there in that same blockchain as a service for trusted execution environments for confidential transactions. And this goes back, I, I think we covered this in one of the episodes before about the whole secure enclaves concept 
that now we have where both Intel has implemented it in hardware, Microsoft has implemented it also inside Windows, I believe it's in software, through a virtual sandbox that basically encrypts memory so that even if you were to memory dump a machine, you would still not be able to see the contents in clear text of the memory. So cool. uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's like the most secure computing that you can do right now in a connected system, of course. Then we have, again, to make it really easy for uh, developers to adopt, there is an Ethereum extension for VS Code. So like I mentioned before, Quorum itself is a fork of Ethereum. So this extension will work both with Ethereum or with Quorum. And the big thing here is that we already had an extension that uh, some individual had created for VS Code, but now Microsoft is putting their muscle behind it and they have created a first party Ethereum extension for Visual Studio Code. So that gives you an idea of how much they are supporting this, uh, this uh, ecosystem. And they have also created a new developer's kit for Azure Blockchain as a Service that can integrate with their own Azure offerings like Logic Apps, uh, Flow, or Azure Functions so that you can interact really easily with blockchains. And the interesting part there as well is that because of the compatibility between the what is behind the Azure blockchain service and the basic Ethereum blockchain is that these integrations actually work with the public worldwide Ethereum blockchain as well. So you can leverage them with the public Ethereum that you know anybody can interact with any day. That's a nice set of updates actually that making it much more um, appealing if, if you ask me uh, using it and, and much easier to maintain. Very smart Microsoft. Let's move on to Azure Data Explorer. Yeah, so I don't have a ton of info here because this is basically a new service that it's in preview and there's coming up with lots of new features that they're adding uh, during the preview. But basically Azure Data Explorer is a new data engine that is built for receiving large amounts of streaming data and being able to query them at scale really fast. So the idea here, of course, is uh, depending on your scenario, is this a good fit for you or not, right? Uh, it is an append-only store, so you can just put data in. It's not a replacement to now. Now, let's say, for example, we just talked about Cosmos DB, but Cosmos DB is a full, you can develop a full-blown OLTP application on it, right? Because you can fetch documents or records, change them and put them right back, right? And Cosmos DB also is very fast in ingestion, so the streaming speed would work well but azure data explorer the idea is if you don't if you don't manipulate the data after the fact if you're just you know pumping data in then this could be a good service for you because it allows you to do really easy SQL-like queries on the data as it is already received by the service. It has lots of different data sources that it supports for, for streaming. And it also, the actual environment that you work with to get the results back, it's a very nice graphical results. You can easily chart the results on it. I believe it uh, supports a really large amount of, of bandwidth of data as it's coming in. And then you can also specify how much of that data should be kept hot. So for example, if you just want to have, let's say two days of hot data and then the rest just let it go into longer term storage, then you can configure that in the service and it'll manage that for you. So right now this story is kind of like basically developing and we'll, we'll see where it goes. I think, I think it's a niche 
kind of data service. But for the people that might be in that particular niche, it could just make it really easy to get what you need, right? Because it's like plug and play kind of thing. You get a full-blown in high ingestion, easy query, easy graphics, the exploration, really easy service all in, in one deployment kind of thing. Okay, great. I'm looking forward to seeing um, how that, you know, materializes. Another, you know, regular updater for Microsoft and one of my favorites is the cognitive services. What, uh, what, what were your favorites over there? Yeah, so there, there is a lot of, of new things that are coming up here with cognitive services. So for example, I'll just run through them because there's a, there's a lot that, uh, um, there's many here and we, we don't really have time to go through all of them, but I'll mention a few of them. So for example, uh, we have what is called a personalizer, which is a cognitive service API to allow you to uh, create uh, personalized user experiences in your application. So you can kind of like build a user profile and then make uh, suggestions dynamically on what people might uh, want in their own profiles and like things that they might be interested in and so forth. There's conversation transcription, which already existed, but now it can actually do transcription in real time, right? So it's, it's not just, you know, you, you feed it an audio file, you wait a while, and then it comes out. It, I can actually do it in real time now. There's That's a really, really neat. Yeah, there's a really interesting one that I thought it's very, like, it w I can see how it's super useful, and it's called the form recognizer. And basically, what it means is you can actually just feed it images of, of forms, and it will give you back a structured output of the form. So, for example, let's say you, you know, the classic form that you get at the, at the, at the DMV or any uh, insurance form or anything, you know, we all fill our names or addresses or whatever. And then all these people get this back in, so many people get this back in paper and then like what, what happens with them, right? Most of them probably get scanned, but then how does it actually go into most systems? Do people actually type them in? The people sometimes do OCR, but the OCR itself is not, usually doesn't give you a nice structured output either, right? So the form recognizer actually gives you structured output where it says, you know, like, these are the fields in the form. This is the, the header of the field. This is the value that is in the field and so on, right? So you will be able to automate a lot of this, what's it called, like digitizing the the manual data entry right oh that that is wonderful it, you know certainly wonderful for the environment there are several paper have form heavy industries um also internals at companies uh, also i just hate paper uh, you know someone tries to give me their business card i don't take it anymore i take a picture evernote does <laughs> like this and you know i don't want it in fact i now carry one business card so same deal like no you can't have it but you can take a picture of it the, the less paper the better that's exciting yeah. And then some of the other things we have, for example, they did neural, what is called as neural text to speech. And basically that's a fancy, that's a fancy way of saying that is basically the machine is reading to you, but is not reading in like the robotic type of voice. It's actually reading in a very natural type of voice. Like you would not even necessarily notice that it's an AI that's reading to you and taking into account the punctuation as well so that you know it proper like you know when when you read a sentence if there's a comma you have your stop and then you keep going kind of thing right that the flow of of regular reading all that is built into it so it's not just like the 
classic robot voice that's that's reading to you. And 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 I, I know that people might remember from the Google Developer Conference where they did a reservation through an AI as well, and it just sounded like it's an actual person kind of thing. So it, it is kind of like that, basically making text text to speech really really natural. Where it's also kind of scary that you know we're not over the phone. You're not going to be able to tell apart an AI from a human very soon. Yeah, that's both creepy and awesome at the same time. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty much uh, the big, big updates there on cognitive services. And the other big update as well, of course, is that they are adding some of more, most and more of these capabilities into the on-premises containers that you can run for cognitive services, right? So if you don't want to run them in the cloud, you can download the cognitive services containers and run them on-prem and you just pay for your usage of the containers and they're going to continue supporting these and they continue to add more of the cloud services into the containerized version as well. Oh, that's cool. I think a natural next one is let's talk about Azure ML services. So the Azure ML services has two main updates. The first one is one that I think you and I have discussed in the past and is how do people manage uh, what Microsoft, or I don't, know, I don't know if the broader literature is adopting this term, but Microsoft has definitely adopted it, is what they call ML ops, right? Is that we, and we see this problem all the time. People uh, have some data scientists or some analysts on staff and they come up with a great machine learning idea and then there's nobody that knows how to make it a reality in a real production system. Right. There's a big difference between taking an experiment and having an experiment be successful. And then there's another big difference between making it a part of a application production system tied to how do you actually manage the pieces of the model itself? How do you version it? How do you monitor it? How do you implement it in a way that is reliable, that is performant, that is secure? All the other elements of good software deployment, right? So they're doing a lot of work here in Azure ML services to support this idea of ML ops from the point of supporting more like a DevOps type of automation. So now there's an ML command line interface for scripting many of the different activities that you would do in an ML pipeline. So creating new environments, deploying code, creating new data sets, uh, managing models, all these things can be done through the, the CLI right? So you can easily automate them as well. They are putting a really tight integration with, obviously, with Git and, and GitHub between the ML service to it. So you would also have uh, the possibility of versioning and managing data sets. So you can snapshot data sets that you use for particular experiments, for example. So you could say this was the snapshot of the data set that we used for the deployment that we did in June. And then maybe you'll use a new data set for a new different deployment that you do further down the line, but you have still the snapshot of the previous one. There is big support now for more tools for model debugging as well. So you'll be able to do more advanced uh, troubleshooting into your experiments as well. And there's also going to be an audit trail capability so that, like I said before, you know, machine learning, codes and deployments are getting the treatment of, of real actual application software, right? So there's an audit trail of who changed what, who deployed what kind of thing, especially 
start looking at how all these different algorithms are being used, they're going to start being used for very, very important things, things that can impact very important things in terms of like, let's well, say, results. healthcare, healthcare insurance, uh, loans, uh, things that can be manipulated for, for negative purposes too, right? So yeah. security and auditing is going to start to become really important. Like, you know, technically you can say like, oh, let's say like, a bank can can use ML for a risk assessment of somebody before they give you a loan, right? But then there's probably a lot of money to be made by manipulating those algorithms to somebody's benefit, right? So that's the idea here. Microsoft is pushing a lot into this whole ML ops angle, which I think is really the right way to go, right? Because it's, it's what's going to take ML from just being this experiment space into just turning it into a regular part of software development, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's very, the, the upcoming impact of ML is very, very exciting. You know, I follow several studies of where it just excels where humans and some of the tasks that humans are terrible at, like, you know, looking for tumors and x-rays, you know, over and over and over again, you know, uh, that's, yeah, that's very absolutely. exciting. No update is complete also without uh, a Kubernetes update. What's going on in Kubernetes on Azure? So Microsoft continues to build on their own Kubernetes service, of course. And the big update here is uh, we have uh, general availability of what they call Kubernetes virtual nodes. So this basically means that your Kubernetes cluster can auto-scale technically to an unlimited amount of nodes if necessary, right? So you can, let's say... You start with a 10-node Kubernetes cluster, and then as time goes on, you can expand or contract the size of your cluster based on these virtual nodes. And on top of that, they've added event-driven auto-scaling as well, so you can plug in uh, basically a, an event grid to the Kubernetes service that is listening to any sorts of events to be able to add or remove uh, nodes from your Kubernetes service as well. And they've also added and something that shouldn't be too surprising is more tools that are integrated with the Kubernetes service, like Azure Dev Spaces, which allows you to collaborate in a development team and, and keep track of what environments are for what people and what resources are shared. And also more integration with Azure Pipelines, which is the, the DevOps CI CD part of, of Azure. And also integration with Azure Policy. Azure Policy is the declarative security feature of Azure, right? So you will be able to manage access and capabilities of uh, what accounts can do in a particular Kubernetes service cluster integrated with Azure Policy as well, which are all developments that we would expect, of course. As I think Microsoft has embraced Kubernetes just like any other technology regardless of where it started right and they're just continuing to develop they're continuing to strengthen that uh, the kubernetes story right and now they also this was actually pre-built that uh, aks is also part of azure stack so it just makes it easy for uh, migrations right application migrations are gonna start turning into you could just run your application inside Azure Stack on-prem on AKS, and then when you're ready to move it to the cloud, it would just be trivial to basically take that deployment from Azure Stack, redeploy into the real Azure, and, and off you go, right? Yeah, that's such a great play. I, I, I admire Microsoft's uh, strategic thinking in that way. That's, that's an excellent way to 
to create an on-ramp to Azure. So brilliant strategy. I think we only have time for one more update. Let's cover Azure Functions. Yeah, so Azure Functions, there's a few things that got announced that are more, I would say, improvements over the existing service. So there is integration now with Azure API Management. API Management basically allows you to have these really nice tools for figuring out the APIs that you host inside Azure in terms of security, consumption, telemetry of your APIs for monitoring, and so on. And Azure Functions being the serverless option is a really good fit if you just want to have you just host an API through an Azure function, right? Because let's say you receive some API calls from a partner, it just triggers a function, gets the data that the partner wants, and you only pay for that, compute for that small amount of seconds that that API was triggered, right? So Azure Functions is a really good fit for API development, and now they're integrating it with this other API, general API management service that Azure already had. They're also creating a new premium plan. So what it does is, is pretty much is just, it boots up the different specs of what you could get out of performance in in Azure Functions, right? So you have options for more cores, for more memory for a function to execute. You can make the function more secure if you wanted to by adding a virtual network integration. You can have it spin up quicker as well if you want it to be. And you can have also a scaling options you know, if you need to scale to more instances of your function to do more parallel processing and things like this, then you can do it as well through the premium plan of Azure Functions. And then last is one that I think is kind of interesting. I know a lot of people were asking for it online and is the ability to do serverless PowerShell compute by adding PowerShell support into Azure Functions. Obviously, PowerShell being geared more towards not really full software development, but more towards the scripting and more admin type of work. I'm going to be interested to see what uh, people use this for, right? It's basically serverless PowerShell execution could be interesting scenarios for what you can do with it, right? You could deploy infrastructure, for example, through an Azure function that answers some sort of event kind of thing, right? It opens up some interesting scenarios. Yeah, yeah, it sure does. Well, those are the updates we found the most interesting folks. There are, were many, many updates, so obviously we can't cover them all. I hope you enjoyed the show. And we're going to try out a new lightning round question on Warner. Warner's lightning round was in episode one of the Datascape, if you want to hear it. Warner, are you uh, game to uh, try out the new lightning round question? Oh, well, it's been a while, so let's do it. All right. Amazon Alexa, Google Home, or Cortana as your virtual assistant? I don't trust virtual assistants. All right. <laughs> I, am, I am my own assistant. <laughs> Fair enough. No, seriously, I just feel uncomfortable talking to machines, to be honest. I've tried it before. I mean, I have an iPhone, and I tried Siri, and I couldn't get over myself talking to the phone to do stuff for me. So I just turned it off, to be honest. And how about... I'm too old for this. <laughs> and how about voice dictation? Are you using, uh, doing any of that? No, I don't do either. I know a lot of oh. people do that too. They text just with voice and they just talk to the phone to like send texts and stuff. I just, I don't know. I guess I feel weird doing that. 
I get you know what I, I was like that too and once I started doing it it's very addictive I also have dragon naturally uh, speaking now on my my work machine just because I write so many emails it kind of saves my hands it's interesting we'll see if you come around that's all the time we had for uh, the podcast today folks the biggest compliment you can give us is always by helping others find us and telling them what you like about us you can do that by tweeting about it telling a friend or maybe sh- uh, writing a short honest review on your podcast provider of choice thanks again for listening to us have a great day on the datascape navigating the datascape